Well, good morning. It's uh, so good to see everyone here and uh, also to see you at home. I can't see you, but obviously you can see me. So we're glad to be gathered together uh, to worship our Lord. Before we hear the scripture for this morning, uh, this morning's message read, let's, uh, let's bow our heads one more time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed shown us such great and amazing love, an undeserved love, Father, that comes to us through the sacrifice of your Son, through the work of your Spirit, through the preaching and the hearing of your Word. And we thank you, Father, as well, that you send us out into the world that we might declare this marvelous truth of God's amazing love, of his transforming love, of the power to turn hearts that were once stone into hearts that are flesh and obedient, full of grace and truth. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we go into the world, mindful that it is an imperfect world, Lord, our news reports are filled with tragic stories, And we often do not know how to process the things that we see, the the hurt, the pain, the violence, the misunderstanding, the injustice. Father, just a pure rage. And we are overcome at times and overwhelmed, not knowing how to respond, how to deal with such things. And the only recourse we have, O Lord God, is to look to the cross and to see there the very wrath of God poured out, the very rage that we see acted out in our world, born by our Savior. And we now, covered by His blood, washed of our sins, made now His agents, His representatives, His ambassadors to go to a world filled with these things and proclaim that there is indeed a Prince of Peace, there is a King of Kings, there is a Lord of Lords, there is one who reconciles all things in himself, because he is full reconciliation. And so we pray, Lord God, for those serving in government. We pray, Father, for those serving in law enforcement. We pray for those, Lord God, who have perhaps been too long victimized by a system which at times appears to be rigged against them. We pray, Lord God, for those who see the only recourse to their frustration to be violence and rage. We pray for peace. We pray that we would be those instruments of peace. That we would work, O Lord, toward the justice that your word shows us is possible through faith in Christ. That true reconciliation comes by humbling ourselves before the one who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and suffered death, even the death of a cross. Father, we are thankful for your word, which continues to remind us of its power and of its truth, of its sheer and utter and total and complete reliability, and that by this word and through this word and in this word and from this word, we gain that boldness, that confidence to go before the throne of grace and to make intercession with the one who makes intercession for us. And so we pray now, O Lord God, that we would be those who are salt and light as you have made us, that we might do good works in Christ's name and in his 
power that our Father in heaven would be glorified, that our world would be improved, that we would bear fruit that is in keeping not only with our repentance but with our obedience to the one who commands us to go, abide, and bear fruit. So, Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that we are adopted as your children and see Christ as our elder brother for your Holy Spirit who continues to draw us ever nearer, ever closer to your heart, to your beauty, and toward your glory. Help us, O Lord God, to just saturate our heart and our mind and our soul in these things by delving into them and seeing them in your word. Speak to us now from your word, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to look at um, the end of chapter 2 in 1 John, and then we're going to make our way into chapter 3, and, and things will begin to turn in terms of John's message. He will make a transition the first half of the letter uh, where he has talked about being light and what it means to walk in the light. When we get into verse uh, chapter 3 and, and further on, He'll uh, make a shift into talking about God as love and what it means to walk in love as we follow him. But there are these transitional elements that take place, and one of them is at the end of uh, chapter 2, where we pick up the narrative. Um, John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, meaning Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, the, the previous two sermons I have mentioned and have included uh, the, the following quote by C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to include it the third time, and I'll explain why after I read it. So the, the quote that is from Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, in the chapter titled Hope, Lewis writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Now, I include that quote this third time, and, and this is the last time I'll put it in a sermon, at least in First John. But I, I do it to clarify an important point, that although we truly are indeed made for another world, we are called to live in this one. 
And uh, you know, quoting from another one of Lewis's books, the, the, the fact that those who are the most heavenly-minded are those who prove to be the most earthly good. That by setting our mind on things of above, by being aware that we are made for another world, we can live in this one with, with a sense of hope, a sense of purpose, a sense of joy and delight, knowing that we have been tasked with a particular role and a particular mission. So this other world for which we are made is at the same time similar to the one in which we live, but it is also different. It is similar to the world in which we live, this other world for which God made us, in that, in that like us, this present world awaits the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, His appearing, at which time, according to the Apostle Paul, uh, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's Romans 8.21. So it'll be the same in a sense. It's going to be renewed, but it's going to be different in that like us, the present world will be transformed to reflect the, the glory of God in all of its majestic, holy, and immaculate brilliance. So this world in which we live is, is to give us a, a hunger and a taste for the world for which we are truly made, one that will be renewed and transformed just like we will be when Christ returns. And it's living in light of that, says John, that allows us to pursue the very things that Jesus has called us to pursue as light uh, as we follow him. And so according to, to John, the realization that we are made for another world is based on two essential things, which he has already covered. One is the fact that we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with Him, changed by Him, transformed by Him. Hearts of stone now replaced with hearts of flesh. Minds that were once focused on ourselves and simply and solely on the things of this world, pursuing success, pursuing wealth, pursuing fame, pursuing notoriety, all of those things which have a certain sense of meaning and purpose, but ultimately are destined to dust and decay, the Spirit has changed and reoriented our focus and our drive. And the second thing that, we, that makes us aware that we're made for another world is that we have received knowledge. We all have knowledge. The anointing of the Spirit uh, comes from the hearing of the gospel, and the hearing of the gospel is what creates faith in us and allows us to have knowledge, specifically the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. And that truth, knowing who Jesus is, then propels us and motivates us to live with a sense of optimism and hope in this world, even in the face of what seems to be a hopeless situation. When it seems that we're sort of enshrouded in fog, it is the knowledge of Jesus is the Christ, the fact that we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, allows us to keep the commands of Christ. Because it's by keeping the commands of Christ that we recognize, although we are made for another world, we are indeed called to live in this one and to practice the righteousness of Christ and the things that he preaches. So the essential meaning that John wants us to draw out from this is whoever abides in Jesus by practicing what he preaches in this world will live with him forever in the world to come. And so if you want a, a big idea in terms of, okay, the, the overview of what we're doing this morning. So the big idea is whoever abides in Jesus by keeping his commands in this life will abide with him forever in the next one. 
And we'll unpack this, and um, I see a lot of you taking pictures. I'll send these slides out on Wednesday. <laughs> so have no fear. Have no fear uh, about that. And I'm glad you take pictures. That, that's very rewarding. You're very encouraging. So whoever abides with Jesus and does what he, does what he says in this life will abide with him forever in the next one. Uh, and then the, the way the, the, the points will break down, the 20, uh, verse 28 and 29, uh, whoever abides in Jesus will have nothing to fear when he returns. And then whoever abides in Christ is loved by God with the love that is out of this world. So that's, that's how this is going to break down. That's where we're going. So let's look at the fact that whoever abides in Christ will have nothing to fear when he returns. And John does something very interesting here, which is sort of lost uh, in our English translation. It comes a little bit close when we have the word confidence and uh, coming. Because when, when John says uh, here, little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. The, the word in, the conf, in Greek for confidence is the word parousia. And then the word that he uses to describe the coming of Jesus is the Greek word parousia. And so there's a bit of a play on words in terms of the similarity, the idea that we have confidence when Jesus comes, that we have this boldness to stand before Jesus and not shrink back from him in shame and fear at his coming. If you know, he says, that he is righteous, uh, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And John, again, is very keen on reminding us to abide in Christ. So if you have been keeping track or keeping score at home, this is now the 10th time that John uses some form of the word abide. That's 10 times in 23 verses. 10 times in the same chapter. So as far as John is concerned, abiding in Jesus is a big deal. And I'm halfway tempted, but I won't do it, to use the phrase that our now president once used to describe a particular deal. This is a big deal. Uh, to abide in Jesus. As a matter of fact, according to John, it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternal life and death that we abide in Christ. And one reason John repeats this exhortation to abide in Jesus is very simple. He heard it himself from the, word, from the mouth of Jesus and we read it as part of our scriptural reading this morning from John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And if the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. So John says, if you want to do righteousness, if you want to walk in the light, if you want to live in this world in anticipation and confident hope of living with Christ in the next, we must abide in him. We must live in him. We must draw our life from him draw our, our mission from him as well. Another reason that John repeats this exhortation so often to abide in Christ is because he knows that a day is coming when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In the words of the Apostle Paul, where each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.10. So when that day comes, John says, 
He wants the members of his congregation to stand before Christ with confidence that they have, with his help and reliance upon the Holy Spirit, kept his commands, that they have spent their entire lives pursuing and practicing righteousness under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the word. And so he continues through this section to emphasize abide, 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 because that is how we are going to do what Christ requires. He says, whoever abides in Christ then will have nothing to be afraid of when Jesus returns. Won't be able to shrink back if you're, because you're in him now, you'll be in him then. Whoever abides in Jesus will keep his commands. Everyone who abides in Jesus, he says, practices righteousness. And everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, meaning Jesus. So let's slow down for a minute and let's, let's not assume we know what John is talking about here. Let's sort of unpack some of these things. What does John mean when he says, born of Jesus? We kind of read these words at times and think, oh, we kind of know what that means. And maybe we do, but it's good to review. Right? To be born of Jesus simply means to, it refers to a spiritual rebirth. It is to be born again by grace through faith in Christ as atoning sacrifice for sins. The Son of God, the, the Savior of the world, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who was crucified, died, buried, and was raised on the third day, who spent 40 days after his resurrection walking this earth before his ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. And from there, as the creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So everyone who is born of Jesus is born again by faith in him, a spiritual rebirth. They go from being sinners to saints, from rebels to children of God. And everyone who abides in Jesus, as John, practices righteousness. What does he mean by righteousness? He means that everyone who abides in Jesus does what is right in God's eyes. Think about that for a moment. So here we are, right, where if we know who Jesus is, or maybe we don't, and we think that the way to get in God's good graces is to do right, Jesus says, remember, apart from me, you can't do right. Apart from me, you can't do what pleases God. But in me, you can do right. You can please God because I have pleased him by my obedience. And so it is as we rely upon Christ's obedience to the Father, following the leading of the Spirit through obedience to the Word, that we are able to do what is right in God's eyes. We can be loving, we can be forgiving, we can be merciful, we can be compassionate, we can be kind, we can be humble. And Jesus shows us what these things look like. And the Apostle Paul continues to encourage us to do them in his letters. And John, as the beloved disciple, reminds us as well. Everyone who abides in Jesus practices righteousness. They are morally pure and ethically courageous. They open their heart. John will talk about this later on in chapter 3. They open their heart to a brother or sister in need. They're generous. You're compassionate. You're merciful. You're kind. You open your home. You open your checkbook. You open your, your automobile to be used by those who are in need. They do justice. They love mercy. They learn how to walk in humility. That's practicing righteousness. And John is drawing a contrast between 
the members of his congregation who are abiding in Jesus and remember those who went out. That those who went out aren't doing these things. They aren't doing right. And I think one of the things that he emphasizes that we do right is so that those who went out might be, by God's grace, pulled back in. That they may have cut themselves off from the body, but we, if we are concerned for them, might go out and bring them back. Why do we practice righteousness? What's the point of it? And John has already said the point of it. So we won't shrink back in fear. So we'll have nothing to be afraid of when we stand before Jesus on the day that he comes to judge the living and the dead. It's a, it's a, a call to self-examination. Now, here's the thing. There likely may be some in John's congregation, there likely may be some even here this morning, who think right now they have nothing to be ashamed of before God. They just assume that, well, you know, I, I read the Bible or I, I go to church or I know who Jesus is, I've heard about that, and I try to be a good person, but have never really crossed that line, that Rubicon of faith, such that they have been born again by faith. And John is is continually to exhort his congregation to examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. Because there's a day coming when the final exam will be given and there's no retest. There's, there's no retake. You either pass it now or you fail it then. There's no taking it the day that Jesus comes back. There won't be time. And I, In terms of just being ashamed or being afraid, uh, an example that... Uh, might be a bit homely to, to think about, but I remember as a, as, a, as a kid, you know, sometimes on a Saturday, my mom and dad, they would go out to visit with friends or whatever, and they'd leave my brother and I at home. And uh, my brother is six years older uh, than me, so they felt fairly confident, you know, they could leave their 13-year-old son with their seven-year-old son, and everything would be fine. Did you ever leave two boys home alone? <laughs> And I remember those nights when, you know, my brother and I, as soon as my parents left, you know, we'd take the cushions off the, off the sofa, and they became our wrestling mat. And, you know, we would just wrestle and, and horse around for, you know, who knows how long before we sat down to watch some whatever movie was on or, or, or ball game. Now, on those nights when we horsed around like that and, and everything was fine, we put the cushions back, and I remember laying in bed waiting for mom and dad to come home, and in my bedroom I could see the lights the headlights were to sort of roll onto the wall of my, of my bedroom. If Anthony and I had not done anything wrong, those lights, the appearance of those lights, the sound of the door opening and closing, the sound of the key in the lock of the front door opening was of great comfort to me. Because mom and dad were home, we were safe, no bad guys could get to us. But, if in our horsing around, which occasionally did happen. We broke a lamp or something else broke. When I would see those lights flash on the wall of my bedroom and I would hear the car door open and close and the key go into the front door, there was a reckoning to be had. John wants us to know the former comfort and assurance not the latter anxiety and fear. Do right now by being born of Jesus now so that when Jesus appears, you have confidence to stand before him. 
Right? Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. But there are those who know Jesus is Lord now who then can rise from their knees and stand and worship him and exalt him and praise him and enter into the joy of their Savior. John says, abide in Jesus now. Practice righteousness now. Because the day is coming when all will be judged based on what they have done and how they have treated the Savior. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And so until he returns, we are responsible for practicing righteousness, to do right in God's eyes, keeping ourselves morally clean, ethically pure, so that on the day of his appearing, we can stand confidently before him. It's easy to read a verse like this and become frightened and think somehow God is motivating us by fear to serve him. But John didn't write it from that perspective. He wrote it as a way of encouraging us. It's, it's like when your, your, your son or your daughter is, is playing a sport or is engaged in some music recital and you're sort of cheering them on. They know the, the anxiety of that moment and you're there saying, you can do this. You have studied. You have prepared. You know, it, it, it's going to be all right. John is taking that same kind of attitude. The fact that Jesus is coming back is good news. It's welcome news, um, because when he comes back, then he will set the world to right. Justice will be served. Good will be rewarded. Evil will be punished. He will make sure that the unrepentant receive the full wages that their sins deserve. At the same time, he will see to it that the righteous will be rewarded for their faithfulness to him. Whoever abides in Jesus now will abide with him forever. And they will have nothing to fear when Christ returns. And so John's point is simple, clear, and direct. Whoever abides in Jesus practices righteousness. They do what is right. They will have nothing to fear when Jesus returns. They have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and have knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. They do what is right because they know that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes they do what is right, and by doing so, they prove they've been born of Jesus and that whoever is born of Jesus is born again by faith in him. Now, up to this point in the letter, John has been, he has been on message. <laughs> he, has, he has started with a particular thing in mind, and he has stayed true to that. But after going through this section here at the end of chapter 2, it's as if as soon as he finishes writing, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Jesus. His emotions kind of get the best of him, and he temporarily goes off script in a good way. He, has a, he takes a moment at the start of chapter 3 to describe what is the miraculous nature that, and, and grace of God that allows us to be called children of God. I don't know if it's ever happened to you when you're writing something, writing an email or writing a letter of encouragement, where you have one thing in mind and halfway through, something strikes you. You think, oh, I've got to put that in there. I've got to say that because this is too good to leave out. That's what happens to John at this moment. That's why he writes at the beginning of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone having this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's interesting about this, and I want to make sure I don't go too far afield, John got a glimpse of what Jesus would look like if you look, read the first chapter of the Revelation. He gets a foretaste. He had a foretaste of the glory that awaits those who will see Jesus and be like him at his appearing. Hair, white as snow, eyes blazing with fire, feet like burnished bronze, just reflecting this majestic glory. But the thing that John, to pull us back into the text, the thing that John wants us to be marveled at, or to marvel at, is the fact that God loves us with a love that is out of this world. This is where Lewis's quote then has its relevance and begins to shine with the brilliance of the midday sun. The reason that we are made for another world is because we are loved with a love that is out of this world. There's an older translation of this paragraph that reads like this. See what unearthly love the Father hath given us, in order that we may be called children of God, and so we are. It is for this reason that the world does not recognize us, because it did not recognize Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it was not yet manifested what we shall be. We know that if it be manifested, we shall be like him, because we shall see him even as he is. And everyone that hath this hope resting on him purifies himself even as the Lord is pure. That phrase, what unearthly love, can also be translated of what country, or literally from what world, from what realm the Father has loved us. He's loved us from another world, from another realm, because this world doesn't know that kind of love on a regular basis, or on any basis. Christ, the love of God in Christ, comes to us literally from another realm. I like how the NIV translates uh, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That's the the sense of it, that this otherworldly love is not cheap. God is not cheap with His love. He is not miserly with His love. He is not stingy with His love. He pours it out beyond our ability even to comprehend it. It's immeasurable. It is infinite. He lavishes it upon us the way that I would watch my eldest son, you know, take a jar of peanut butter and just dip the knife in and just sort of slab like a six-inch chunk of peanut butter on that bread and then you pop the other slice. Like, there he is. You're not cheap with the peanut butter, boy. It's there, Right? (laughs) That's the same kind of way God lavishes his love upon us. There's no limit to it. There's no condition to it other than we abide in Christ by grace through faith. And the purpose of this love from another world, the world, by the way, for which we are made, is not simply that we might be saved from the due penalty of our sins. It is, says John, that we may be called children of God. And so we are, he says. Now we are. Not then. Now. 
Peter says something very similar toward the end of his second letter. When, toward the end of 2 Peter, he lists all of the things that uh, will be confronted by those who follow Christ in this world. And then at the end of that, he says, Now, in light of all of these things, what sort of people ought we to be? What kind of otherworldly people are we to be in the midst of this present generation? John's answer, the Bible's answer is this. We ought to be people who abide in Jesus as the children of God now. Jesus himself said he came from a different world. John 8, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus regarding his authority. They're challenging the things that he did and why he did them. And in the middle of this exchange in John 8, remember John 8 is the same chapter where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In the middle of this exchange, Jesus tells the Pharisees, this is why you don't understand what I'm doing. This is why you don't understand what I'm saying. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus came to this world from another world. And he did so to, to bring salvation by dying the death that we deserved and living the life that we could not. He came to be our advocate with the Father. He came to be the propitiation for our sins. He, if you will, bore the, the full measure of God's wrath so that we could receive the infinite measure of God's love, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness that we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins might be made alive in Christ by God's grace. That we who were once God's enemies, God has now in Christ made us friends, children, sons and daughters. We who were once rebellious sinners against God the Father are now made his children by grace through faith in Christ the Son. He came into this world, did Jesus, in order to give us the right to become the children of God. You read that. And John himself wrote these words in, in his gospel in the first chapter, in chapter uh, verses 11 and 12. John says, uh, talking about Jesus, that he came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born of, uh, by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. And that word right that our English Bibles translate in Greek refers to an authority. So it's, it's more than just permission to be called children of God. It's an authority. It's a right that he confers upon those who believe. But it gets better. It's like those commercials, you know, you order like one pan, but if you order now, you get four, right? But in this case, you don't have to pay shipping and handling from the scriptural perspective because John, in another part of the Bible, Paul talks about what it is to be a child of God in Romans 8, 14, and 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God or the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you you receive the spirit of adoption, I love this, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ. And then here's the the thing that goes along with being a child. If indeed we suffer with Him, so we may also be glorified with Him. So see what unearthly love the Father hath given us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. See what unearthly love the Father hath given us that we should receive the Holy Spirit of adoption such that by him we cry, Abba, Father. See what unearthly love the Father hath given us that our adoption is a matter of blood work, not paperwork. Because that blood is indelible. The ink which fills out our adoption papers will never fade, never perish, never spoil, never expire. See what unearthly love the Father hath given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now and forever. So I have to ask. I need to ask. I'm compelled to ask. Do you know this kind of love? This love that comes from out of this world. Have you experienced this kind of love? If you have, then you know what John is talking about. But if you have not, if you haven't experienced love that's out of this world, here now is your opportunity to do so. Here is your opportunity to receive Christ, to Believe in him, to receive from him the right to be called a child of God. To acknowledge that he is the Christ, that he is God the Son, fully God, fully human. That he is the atoning sacrifice for sins. Now is your moment to receive the Holy Spirit of adoption. To be made a child forever of the King. Because listen, whoever abides in Jesus will have nothing to fear when he returns. Whoever abides in Jesus is loved by God with a love that comes from out of this world that enables us to live in this world with hope and conviction that we will live with him in the world for which we are truly made. If you haven't been born again, What John is getting at is, how do you know that? How will you know that? How can you be sure? He wants us to be sure. He wants us to have that confidence. John moves in his letter from confirming our present dignity as God's children to describe our future destiny. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know what that's going to look like. But we do know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone having this hope, everyone having this confidence, everyone having this assurance purifies himself as he is pure, lives in light of that hope and is driven to live by that hope. Because whoever abides in Jesus, as John, hopes in Jesus. Everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies themselves by practicing righteousness. By allowing, if you will, the 
if you want to carry forth the abiding analogy of the vine, then the blood of Christ, if you will, the, runs through us outward into deeds of love, mercy, compassion, and justice. The New Testament says really very little about the nature of our future glory. It simply guarantees that it's to come. We can't conceive of it with our present abilities, our present faculties. We don't know what the life everlasting looks like. Regardless of those who have spent you know, some time in visions and things like that, the Bible doesn't waste time describing it. It just simply points to the reality of it. The only person who's died and come back from the dead is Jesus Christ. I mean, really died. Right? So our, our hope, like our faith, are in Christ it's grounded in the character of Christ as fully God and fully man. This is why John starts the letter off with that conviction, right? Because unless Christ is fully God and fully man, our hope is useless and is in vain. For only one who is both fully God and fully man can be our advocate and our propitiation. That's why the world doesn't know him, doesn't know us, because they don't know who he is. So the surest way to prepare ourselves to experience future glory, says John, is living in the hope that whoever abides in Jesus will have nothing to fear when he returns. The only way to have nothing to fear when he returns is to know, to be sure, that whoever is in Christ now, whoever abides in him, is loved with the love that comes from out of this world. We're going to end our service of worship with a hymn that I think does a marvelous job of expositing this section of John's letter. The hymn is which is really the part of the title of the sermon, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? The, the hymn by Charles Wesley. So that the, the stanzas that we'll, we'll read will exclaim that and proclaim it. But just listen to them. Before you sing them, just listen to what, what Wesley says. I'm going to read just four of them. There are five altogether. But the, the, it says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And now here is the confidence that we will have on that day. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, amazing though it is, true it is that we are, by your grace, by the blood of Christ, by the work of your Spirit, 
adopted as your children. And so we cry with thanksgiving and hope, Abba, Father, O Lord, come. In Jesus' name, amen.